0: If you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, please turn to 2 Timothy, the New Testament epistle of 2 Timothy, and we will be this morning in the closing verses of chapter 3 and the beginning verses of chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 14. Uh, Before the holidays, we were in a series of sermons on 1 Peter. God willing, we will return to that series in a couple of weeks, uh, but this morning I'd like to draw our attention to this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 14, and we'll read through chapter 4, verse 8. The Apostle Paul writing to Timothy says this, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved His appearing. And when Paul writes these words. We understand he is coming to the end of his life. It is possible that the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, revealed this to Paul. But however it happened, Paul has the sense that he is coming to the end of his sojourn. He's an old man. Uh, He's probably in his mid to late 60s at this point. Uh, He is in prison in Rome. Uh, Winter is approaching, and he's getting cold, so later on he will tell his friend Timothy to bring him a cloak so that he could warm himself. He's lonely and isolated, the only person left with him here at the end is Luke. Uh, Paul says that all had deserted him, including Demas, who is said to be in love with this present world. Additionally, Paul will say at the end of the book that he suffered great harm at the hands of a man named Alexander the coppersmith. The situation for Paul is bleak, and the apostle is facing great difficulty even as he knows he is nearing the end. And yet Paul, as he faces these trials, and looks at his impending death by the grace of Christ, maintains an extraordinarily hopeful and faith-filled outlook. Uh, Look at chapter 4, verse 16, what Paul says there. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So here's Paul in prison in Rome. He knows he's coming to the end of his life and he's writing to Timothy. He is described elsewhere in the New Testament, in this way in Philippians chapter two. There Paul said of Timothy, "I have no one like him, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. Now as a son with a father. He has served with me in the gospel. This is the man to whom Paul is writing. Now think about this. Try to put yourself. In Paul's shoes. As Paul comes to the end of, the, of his life, he no doubt has anxieties, right, about all the churches. He tells us that in another place. Uh, you just have to read a few of Paul's letters in the New Testament to the various churches to know the great anxieties Paul feels for these churches. No doubt, Paul, at this point in his life, has some unfulfilled ambitions and dreams of taking the gospel to other places. He's also dealing with many friends and close colleagues in ministry who have deserted him and in some cases have even deserted the Christian faith altogether. And here's Paul. But see, for Paul, Timothy was a bright spot. Amidst all the discouragements and amidst all that looked bleak. What an encouragement Timothy was to Paul. Paul is now writing to Timothy in the knowledge that he, Paul, is soon to be passing off the scene, but Timothy will remain, and Paul is going to be passing the baton to Timothy, uh, as it were. Now, as Paul is writing at the end of his life, in a sense, we have something like the last will and testament of the Apostle Paul, and as he's writing to his chosen man, his son in the faith, his apostolic deputy, what does he say to him? What are the matters of chief importance to the great apostle who had preached all over the known world at that time and planted so many churches, had seen so much of the work of God's Spirit as he's approaching his impending death and martyrdom? What are the matters of chief importance to the apostle Paul as he writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, who will continue after he is gone? I will argue this morning that of all that Paul wanted Timothy to do, The central charge he gives to Timothy is to preach the Word. And I will argue that the fact that Paul gives such attention to this task indicates the singular priority this is to have in the life of the church and in the life of the individual Christian. We will focus this morning on Paul's charge to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.1. There you can see those first words. The charge is simply put in this way, Timothy preach... The Word. I want to expound these verses, chapter 3, verse 14, through chapter 4, verse 8, and then I'd like to give three pastoral exhortations at the conclusion of the message. And I'll just say at the front end of this sermon, I am praying that in this new year we as a church will recommit ourselves to the singular priority of the preaching of God's inspired Word. And I have prayed that God would bring about for us an elevation of the sense of the importance of Spirit-anointed preaching. So consider with me an exposition of this passage under four main headings. We're looking mainly at the charge in chapter 4, verse 1, but I have four main headings as we consider that charge. Uh, We'll look firstly at the background to the charge, secondly, the foundation of the charge, Thirdly, the content of the charge, that is to preach the Word. And fourthly, the reason for the charge. Consider with me, firstly, the background to the charge, to preach the Word. The background is essentially this, Timothy's experience with the Bible. Look again at verse 14. Paul says to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, Timothy had a living, vital, personal relationship with the Bible that began apparently in his childhood. He had learned the Scriptures and had firmly believed them. He had come to embrace the Bible as God's Word and had experienced the Bible's unique power in making him wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And actually, earlier in 2 Timothy, we get more information about Timothy's godly heritage and how it is that he learned the Bible and from whom he learned the sacred writings. If you would turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, just maybe a page or two over in your Bibles, There we read, the Apostle Paul says of Timothy, 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. And on the basis of this heritage in verse 8... Paul will say, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Timothy had learned the Scriptures from his grandmother Lois and from his mother Eunice. So now looking back at chapter 3, verse 14, let's read that passage again. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Well, who did Timothy learn the Scriptures from? He learned it from Grandma Lois and his mom Eunice. And the way in which this verse is constructed, the way it's written, Paul's to commit himself to the Scriptures, but he's to do so knowing from whom he learned it would seem to indicate that something about the testimony and the witness and the character and the conduct of his mom and his grandma adorned the truth that Timothy came to believe. Something about who they were, something about the force of their faith adorned the truth that they were teaching to their son and their grandson, Timothy. Timothy had a wonderful heritage that served to nurture his confidence in the Bible. The testimony, the witness of his grandmother Lois, his mother Eunice, had the effect of vindicating the truth of God's Word and commending the power of the Scriptures. Paul is in effect saying to Timothy now at this stage of his life, don't move away from your commitment to the Bible, which began when you were just a little child. Nurture your commitment to the Bible. Grow in your knowledge of the Scriptures. Maintain your devotion to the Word, which began when you were a little boy, just like little boys and little girls who are in this gathering now. At some point, children, this man Timothy was sitting in church gatherings like this, and he would be home with his mother and with his grandmother, and they would teach him the Bible, perhaps in the way your parents teach you the Bible. And Paul is telling Timothy to call this to mind, what it was like to do devotions with mom and with grandma. Just a sign application here along the way, mothers and grandmothers here today, wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it honor the Lord? If at some point along the way, some years down the road, a pastor or a Christian teacher or a seminary professor or someone could commend the influence you have had on your children in shaping their theology, in shaping their knowledge of the Bible. That's what Paul is basically saying to Timothy, don't forget what mama taught you. Don't forget the Bible lessons that she brought to you, don't forget the testimony she carried, That that endorse the truth of the Scriptures. Don't forget the godly heritage that you have in your, mo- in your mother and in your grandmother. Sisters, you have the opportunity to have a deep and lasting impact on the theology and life and worldview of your children, and the potential of that impact is immeasurable. And sadly, some women don't esteem the importance of rearing their children investing in them spiritually and commending the scriptures to them paul would have us think differently i mean just think about this we don't know the names of any of the pastors of the church at ephesus or the church at Colossae, or the church at philippi or the church at thessalonica or the church in antioch or the church in jerusalem but we have recorded in the inspired word of god for all generations throughout the history of the church the example of lois and eunice would god be pleased raise up such women here in our church. Some wonder and speculate as to why Timothy's father and grandmother are not mentioned. Uh, Perhaps they were dead. Perhaps they were unbelievers. Perhaps maybe they were believers, but they were just kind of deadbeat dads uh, who didn't live up to their Christian profession as they ought. We don't know, but we do know it's Lois and Eunice that are mentioned. It was their faith that form the foundation of Timothy's godly heritage. What an encouragement to single Christian moms, uh, or to moms married to an unbelieving spouse, uh, or, or moms married to a believing spouse who just doesn't lead the family spiritually in the way that he ought. What an encouragement this passage is to such women. Well, Paul is about to charge Timothy to preach the word, but before he does, he wants Timothy to recall his experience with the Bible that began in his early childhood. Continue in the things, Timothy, you believed at first. Be faithful to what you were taught, even as a little boy, by your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Now consider with me, secondly, that's the background of the charge. Timothy's experience with the Bible, his godly heritage. Consider with me, secondly, the foundation of the charge or the basis of the charge. And the foundation is essentially this, that the Bible is God's Word and it accomplishes His purpose. The foundation of the charge Paul is about to give to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 1, preach the word. The foundation is this, that the Bible is God's word and it accomplishes his purposes. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Breathed out by God. That's, That's four words in English, one word in Greek. God breathed is the word. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Why should Timothy preach the Word? Paul says because Scripture represents the very breathed out words of God. You read Psalm 23, as we did at the start of this service, you are reading God-breathed words. Uh, You read the prophet Isaiah, you are reading God breathed words. You read an obscure passage in Leviticus, you are reading the very word of God. You read the Gospel of Mark, you are reading the very word of God. How high is your view of the Bible? We do not believe Scripture merely contains God's word nor do we believe the Bible represents man's reflection on God's Word. We believe the Bible is, in fact, the very lively Word of God. All Scripture is breathed out by God, Paul says. So, why preach the Word, Timothy? Because when you do, you are saying, in truth, thus saith the Lord." If the content of preaching is the Scripture, and if the Scripture is the breathed out Word of God, then preaching is in essence to say, thus saith the Lord. The preacher's task is in essence to say to the people, listen up, this is what God has said. That's the preacher's task in a nutshell, which has some titanic implications for the manner and the character of preaching. If this is the task of preaching, to say thus saith the Lord, what implications does this have for the character or manner of preaching? Well, let's start with what preaching is not and cannot ever be. First of all, preaching cannot be conversational or dialogical, that is to say like a dialogue. Preaching is not a chummy, familiar chat between people. Preaching is not conversation. Preaching is not casual. Preaching is not conversational, it's not dialogical, it's not a chat. There's a lot of people today who think uh, the kind of preaching that is more heraldic and proclamational, that that really needs to go the way of the world. What people really need now is something more familiar, something more casual, something where there's kind of a give and take and it's very casual, like let's get rid of all that serious announcement kind of stuff. It needs to be a more familiar kind of dialogue. Now, I will say this, it's not to say that there isn't ever an occasion in the life of the church in which there should be dialogue between the preacher or the teacher and the people of God. It's not to say there shouldn't be any context in which there's conversation over the Scriptures. What I'm saying is preaching is not the venue. Uh, Preaching is not where that kind of casual conversation over the Bible happens. Preaching is a thus saith the Lord exercise. Furthermore, preaching cannot be simply about making good suggestions or providing positive tips or even wise counsel and advice. It's not what preachers are doing. They're not giving advice. They're not testing out some kind of hypothesis. The content of preaching is not provisional. It's not, well, you might try this. In my experience, I found this to be True. No, preaching is not about giving suggestions or tips or advice. Further, preaching isn't and never should be a platform for political partisanship or social commentary or the sharing of the preacher's personal opinions. Now, What is preaching, though, positively? If it is a thus saith the Lord exercise. Preaching is announcement. Preaching is declaration. To preach is to herald, it is to proclaim, it is to stand as a representative for God and to herald his word to a ready and expectant and submissive audience of devoted worshipers. Because the foundation of preaching is thus saith the Lord. The foundation of preaching is the doctrine of revelation. The reality is that God has spoken. He has spoken to us in his word. And preaching is the occasion in which a man called of God, anointed by God's Spirit, expounds the Bible and explains God's Word to the people. And therefore, the manner of preaching must take its shape from the fundamental essence of what preaching is. The verse that crystallizes this idea is 1 Peter 4.11, let him who speaks, speak as the oracles of God. Let him who speaks, the one called upon to preach the word, let him who speaks speak as manner, character, speak as the oracles of God. Now, brother and sister, when you come to church Sunday by Sunday, are you expecting to hear the oracles of God? Do you pray for that? Do we expect this from our preachers anymore? that they would bring to us the oracles of God. The man who is standing in that pulpit has a divinely appointed errand to tell me what God has said. What is the foundation of the charge? Why in a few moments will Paul charge Timothy to preach the Scriptures? It is because, first of all, the Scriptures are the very Word of God. They are breathed out by God, but also, as Paul goes on to say, The Scriptures accomplish God's purposes. Look again at 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. For this purpose, verse 17, that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Word accomplishes God's aim. It is productive toward what God is doing in the world. And what is that aim according to this passage? It is the sanctification, the growth, the maturation of the man of God, the woman of God, complete for every good work. God will accomplish His purposes through His Word. Isaiah 55 verse 10 says a similar thing. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And now in our text, Paul tells Timothy, toward the end of his life, his confidence in the Bible has not waned. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God, and it is Profitable. Useful, beneficial, productive toward, it's able, it's powerful, it does the work. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What effect should this have on us? It should increase our confidence in the power of the Word of God, and it should elevate our view of true spirit anointing, thus saith the Lord, Bible preaching." the background to the charge. Secondly, the foundation of the charge, that the Bible is God's Word and accomplishes God's purposes. Thirdly, now consider with me the content of the charge. The content of the charge. What is the charge? The content of the charge. And the content is, of course, to preach the Word. Second Timothy 4 verse 1, I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, Who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom. You don't start off a charge that way if all you mean to do is say something casual or to send someone on a casual kind of errand. You don't invoke this sort of language if all you mean to do is psych someone up for a motivational speech. You don't invoke the presence of God and the judgment to come if all you mean to do is suggest to people five easy steps for achieving their best life now. Or if all you plan to do is offer up half-hearted suggestions for how people might live if they felt so inclined, you wouldn't speak this way if that's all you meant to do. No, Paul invokes the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the judgment to come in order to accentuate to Timothy the significance and seriousness and priority of the preaching of the Word of God. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by His appearing and His kingdom, you, Timothy, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Timothy, God and Christ Jesus are watching you. The judgment of God is coming. His kingdom is forever. Therefore, Timothy, what do you need to be doing? You need to preach the Word. Friends, the gravity and the solemnity of these words could not be more real. Paul is invoking the presence of God and the coming judgment to impress upon Timothy the urgency the import of this task to preach the word. A nineteenth-century Methodist preacher named Matthew Simpson captures something of the ethos of 2 Timothy 4:1 and 2. Speaking of the preacher, he writes this: His throne is the pulpit. He stands in Christ's stead. His message is the word of God. Around Him are immortal souls, the Savior unseen is beside Him, the Holy Spirit broods over the congregation, angels gaze upon the scene, and heaven and hell await the issue. What associations and what a vast responsibility. Now are such notions a preacher's pretense or are they reality? In light of what the inspired Word of God tells us in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, this should be the death knell of comedians in the pulpit, of lazy and unprepared slouches, of boring ramblers, of congenial storytellers, of partisan political commentators, of heavy-handed browbeaters, and of erudite philosophizers. The man in the pulpit has the solemn task of expounding the Word of God. If he stands up to do anything else, he does so at his own peril and at the peril of his hearers. God is watching, and he is not mocked. Paul calls upon the witness of heaven and the imminence of the coming judgment to impress upon Timothy the urgent priority of his task. He is to preach the Word. And of all the things that are to occupy his attention, and certainly there were other things, but of all the things that were to occupy his attention, of all the things that vie for your time, brother Timothy, you give yourself to this. And friends, this isn't an isolated imperative, even in this particular letter, 2 Timothy 1.8, Paul says to Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 2 Timothy 1.13 and 14, he tells Timothy there, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound, amen. 2 Timothy 2, 15, do your best, Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And now in our text... He gives the charge as straight as could be. Preach the Word. So what have we seen thus far? Paul is in effect saying to Timothy, remember your background with the Bible. Remember your mother and your grandmother and their faithfulness to teach you the Scriptures. Remember the foundation of this charge. That the Bible is in fact the breathed out words of God and it will do the work that God has sent it to accomplish. And now he says in light of this, Timothy, you preach the Word fourthly and finally the background to the charge, the foundation of the charge, the content of the charge. Fourthly and finally, the reason for the charge. Why did Paul feel the need to make this charge to Timothy? Well, for lots of reasons we've already seen, but he goes on to add some more. The reason for the charge is that preaching requires endurance. Preaching requires endurance on the part of the preacher and on the part of the hearer. Verse 2, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Chapter 4, verse 3, for the time is coming. Do this, Timothy, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into mess. As for you... Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul is telling Timothy, you must persevere in preaching because some people will not endure it. Timothy, they're not always going to want your preaching. People will have itching ears, they're going to go after other things. That's why you need to hear this charge. That's why you need to stick to it, because people aren't always going to want to endure sound preaching. They're going to be inclined to look for something else. And that's why you must not stop. It'd be so easy to give them something else, Timothy. But, brother, don't pander to itching ears. Don't cater to people's passions. Don't indulge the spirit of the age. Brother, you keep preaching. Be ready in season and out of season. Don't stop. Paul is telling Timothy, you must persevere in preaching because people will not endorse sound teaching. And Timothy, it's going to be so tempting, so tempting to give them something else other than to feed them on the Word of God. But he's also telling Timothy, I think you need to preach, brother, because preaching is what people truly need. And it's not what the imposters are offering to them. They need the very lively Word of God. Now, if you are to grow, brother, sister, as a Christian, there are certain things you need, right? If we're to grow as Christians, there are certain things we need. You need God's Spirit. You need the Bible. You need a community of Christians around you. And I say this in all seriousness, you need hundreds and hundreds of really good sermons. Christians need hundreds and hundreds of really good sermons. It is often a function of Christian maturity that such people have sat under the regular week-by-week exposition of the Word of God. I'm not talking about great sermons. I'm not talking about totally dynamic and charismatic preachers who are just the best in town or something like that. I'm just talking about good sermons being fed on the Word of God. It is one of the things that we need most. And this comes up again and again in the New Testament, just all over the place. Jesus and the Apostle Paul and the other New Testament writers assume at every point what Christians need as much as anything else is to have the Bible regularly taught to them, to be fed on God's Word. That's one of the new covenant promises, by the way. It's made a few times in the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 3.15. I'm paraphrasing. I don't know the exact words in my mind, but there the Lord foretells that one of the things He's going to do in the New Covenant is He's going to give to His people, shepherds, who will feed them on knowledge and understanding. We need to have the Bible brought to us. We need to have sermons preached to us out of the Word of God Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. You need it. I need it. We need it constantly, even when we may not feel our need of it. So, Paul gives the charge to Timothy because Timothy needs the charge, because preaching the word requires endurance, and because preaching is what people need. And just observe this here at the end. Paul holds before Timothy his own legacy as a preacher who has endured to the end. These verses are so sweet. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, he's not saying this is my reward because I was an apostle or because I was a preacher. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul is holding out to Timothy a faithful example of a man who has persevered and endured and died loving the Bible. Well, now I'd like to transition from the exposition of this passage to consider in closing three pastoral exhortations, three pastoral exhortations, ways we could apply what we've seen today. First of all, brother, sister, prioritize preaching highly in your life. Prioritize preaching highly in your life. As I say those words now, it seems like a really lame heading. It should be more muscular than that. Like, make this one of the highest priorities in your life. What I'm going to say could be disputed, and there would certainly be godly people who would disagree with me on this or not say something like this, but I'm going to say this because I'm sure that I'm right and because I have a biblical foundation for saying it. These 45 minutes, or in some cases an hour, these 45 minutes in which the Word of God is opened up in the context of a gathering of God's people, which He Himself inhabits by His Spirit, these 45 minutes are the most important 45 minutes of your week. We receive all kinds of inputs throughout the week, all kinds of messaging, all kinds of communications, good, bad, or indifferent. We receive all kinds of inputs, but of all the inputs, of all the communications, of all the messages, this one is the most important. The 45 minutes of your week in which a man called of God stands up in the gathering of the Lord's people where God promises to be by His Holy Spirit, and the Word of God is opened up and expounded. The Word of God is preached rightly, and I emphasize, rightly. I'm not talking about the so-called preaching of jokers, impostors, rhetoricians. I'm talking about true spirit anointed, thus saith the Lord, preaching, preaching done right. And here's why the right preaching of the Word of God ought to be so important to the Christian, ought to rise so high in the scale of priorities. The Reformers who had the highest possible view of preaching argued in their confessions that the right preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Now, is that an exaggeration? Is that too high a view of preaching, that the right preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God? I'm not so sure in light of 1 Peter 4.11, let him who speaks speak as the oracles of God. The word is logos, meaning word. Let him who speaks, speak the word of God. If the word is the content of preaching, and if the preacher is in truth expounding the word, then I don't quibble with the reformers on this point. The right preaching of the word of God is the Word of God. And that's what's happening when a man called of God preaches the Bible faithfully. He is bringing the oracles of God to bear on the lives of the assembled congregation, and oh, how you and I need to have the oracles of God brought to us. How we need to be fed on the Word of God, how we need to have the Bible expounded and applied to us, that we might live rightly quorum Deo, before the face of God, and might serve Him in truth, and in holiness, and in righteousness. Let us prioritize highly in our lives. The moments in which we find ourselves before the true preaching of God's Word in the assembly of the Lord's people are the most important moments of our lives. Now, this has all kinds of practical implications. This has implications for people determining where they will go to church. Too often, too often, I have seen people cheapen preaching by allowing it to diminish in their scale of priorities because what's much more important is lively music or youth programs that our kids love or something like that. What we need above all else, brothers and sisters and parents, I'll say this as a dad, what our kids need more than anything else is true inspired spirit anointed preaching. We live in a secular age. How do you expect to not raise secular children? One of the greatest tools at your disposal is a faithful preaching ministry that you bring your children to week by week by week by week. This has implications for people who move for a job. Uh, It is often assumed, I find among, I'll just say my peers, men about my age, the assumption is that God's will for my life is that I pursue my career as far as I could possibly go. And wherever the most prestigious job is, wherever the highest paying job is by which I can provide above and beyond for my family, well, that's the will of God. That's where I should go. Why on earth would you think that way? Can you supply a single biblical text that would lead you to conclude God's will for my life is to pursue the highest paying job I can possibly pursue? I bless God that when my father's job and the demands that were placed on him as he pursued provision for his family, as it became too demanding to be present at other regular gatherings of the worship service, like evening prayer or evening service or Sunday school or something like that, a faithful pastor went to him and encouraged him, maybe you should step back a little bit and just take a demotion. Isn't it better, brother, to have your children and your family before the preaching of God week by week? Shouldn't that be the priority? And I see this all the time. I'm just speaking heart to heart now, very candidly. I see families They move from a particular healthy church, and they go to a new area, and they do nothing to research any churches in the community where they're going because they assume they'll just find a healthy church, and they move to a certain place that's like a desolate, barren wasteland in terms of healthy churches in pursuit of a job, and they assume they're in the will of God. We have no reason to believe that. Brother, sister, I bless God if you're offered a job in another community where you can make great money or something like that. And I bless God that in America, in so many cities across the country, there are healthy churches all over the place. But do not, just commit now, in the context of this assembly, I'm not going to take my family to a place where they will be starved and deprived of faithful Bible preaching. Brother, I don't care if you've risen to the top of your company, you can drive a truck for UPS and provide fine for your family. You could take a demotion and do it. You can communicate in a big way to your family the priority of being under the preaching of the Word of God is more important. Now, it would be easier for a skeptic or a cynic to say to me, well, Alex, you're a preacher. You don't know what you're talking about. But I beg to differ. I spent seven years unloading dirty laundry out of trucks infested with maggots so that I could be by a healthy church where I could be fed and trained and helped and sanctified and equipped for every good work. But I just encourage you to think about that. I'm not trying to diminish your ambitions at all. I encourage guys to aim high, women to aim high, and to think about things they might achieve. But if it comes at the cost of your family, at the cost of being regularly before the preaching of the Word of God, it's too high a cost. This has implications also for how we orient our family schedule. If I could be permitted again to speak from personal experience, there's a lot about my childhood that was positive. There are things that were not. Not everything my parents did was great, but a lot of it was. And one thing I bless God for is that there was throughout the week a sort of movement and momentum of the days and the hours leading us to Sunday. And there was a sort of expectation that was nurtured. There was a sort of sense of occasion. We're going to gather with the Lord's people, and God has made these promises that He's going to be there when we gather, and the Bible is going to be opened up. We we were taught to go to church expecting that God was going to speak to us. And wonder of wonders, my memory banks are... Full. My, my physical body can remember the sensations of my hair standing on end as the Word of God was truly preached among us. And I'll tell you this, the preachers I grew up listening to were ordinary men. None of them were extraordinary. None of them were dynamic. None of them were particularly charismatic. But one thing I will tell you, Robert Fisher and William Hughes and Donald Shunk and Bob Diekema, they fed us on the Word of God. They preached the Bible. And I blessed my mom and dad, they nurtured a sense, this is an event. God is coming. The Word will be present. The Spirit of God will be among us. God is going to come and communicate His Word to us. I'm not talking about any kind of performance, I'm not talking about rhetoric, I'm talking about God fulfilling His promises, feeding His people on the Word of God. That's my first pastoral exhortation, I took far too much time on that. Secondly, brother, sister, expect more from preaching. Expect more, I'll be a little stronger than that, demand more from preaching. This is an exhortation to hearers of sermons and to members of churches. Now, pardon the business language. I really don't like when business language is imposed on the church, but sometimes it's helpful, so pardon the use of this language. But we who listen to sermons, and that's all of us, we create the market for preaching. We, hearers of sermons, create the market for preaching. Preachers don't preach to empty rooms. They preach to people who have come to hear them. Your presence before a man's preaching says something about you and what you want and what you think is going on there. Health, wealth, and prosperity preachers don't preach, don't exist, if there aren't hearers who eagerly come to hear that kind of message. People have created a market for that kind of preaching. The preaching one voluntarily takes in week by week is a reflection of what they believe and what they want. Paul warns Timothy in our passage about the market for preaching. He says… Chapter 4, verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. If that's what's on offer, they're not going to want it. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, to suit their own biases, to suit their own desires. Now, I have a note here that says, don't say much, Alex, about this. But I'm going to say something really quick. People are doing this right now in a major way due to political polarization and the balkanization of different people based on political preferences, political convictions. And you have people that are proactively looking for a church that is leftward and regularly talks about issues of social justice. And more than that, you also have preachers who are proactively looking for churches that have as a feature of the regular preaching and teaching ministry of the church right-wing Rambling and and, and owning the libs, you know, and and, and speaking out at all points against leftist ideologies. I'm not saying there's never a time to talk about politics in the church, but we must not let that happen to us, that we go looking for people who will suit all of our political preferences. Paul says they will turn away, verse 4, from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I want to urge us, brothers and sisters, to be the opposite of these verses. So let me change the language of the text to make my point. Let us commit that we will endure nothing other than sound teaching. That we will reject preachers who try to tickle our itching ears. That we will fire any preachers who teach so as to suit our own passions, and we will not permit our pastors to wander off into mess, but will insist that they preach to us the truth, the very word of God. Paul's words to Timothy do not have a bearing on Timothy only. Brother, sister, you have a part to play in this. I am telling you about your job and our job. And by our, I mean me and Pastor Lai Chow and Pastor Ben and Robert Fisher and Rex Blackburn and Zach DePrima and Brad Kinnison and Aaron Menikoff and Ed Moore and anyone else who would stand up in this pulpit and presume to speak for God. Any man who steps into this pulpit as a sacred charge delegated to him ultimately from God, but also... From the members of this church and they who preach are answerable to God and to you if they do not preach the word you create the market for preaching in this church you as a hearer and as a member of this church must demand that those who stand to speak give you nothing other than the oracles of God brother sister you demand this from your pastors men you give us the bible or you sit down But we will not tolerate anything else. Give us the very lively word of God. You must demand this from those who preach. We will not accept political rhetoric, pastor. We will not accept social justice. We will not accept hobby horses. We will not accept comedy hour. We will not accept a week in the life of the pastor. We will not accept empty speculations and useless philosophizing. Your attitude must be, it must be, we will accept nothing less than true spirit anointed, thus saith the Lord, Bible preaching. We demand pastor. We expect pastor that you feed us on the Word of God. That's the bar for me and anyone else who would preach in this place and future generations of preachers here. Expect more from preaching. Thirdly and finally, and we'll close here, having prioritized preaching highly, having expected more from preaching, brother, sister, assume a posture of humble submission before the preaching of the Word of God. You want the preaching of God's Word. The Word of God is preached. How should we respond with humble submission? Have I exaggerated the nature and importance of preaching? I hope I haven't. If the things I've been saying are true, if this is what preaching is, then what should be our posture as we approach the preaching of God's Word I want to read a passage for you, I'm going to request that you not turn there. Feel free to read it later, I just want you to hear this as I read it. This passage is found in Nehemiah chapter 8, it's one of the clearest records of Old Testament preaching, of what took place when God's people gathered to hear the preaching of the Word of God, Nehemiah chapter 8, listen to the Word of the Lord. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. The movements of their bodies, the disposition of their will, the expectation of their hearts. It's like one man moving all in one place, one body gathering together. And they told Ezra, they told Ezra, they demanded this from Ezra, the scribe. To bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law, that's the scriptures, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. In the presence of the men and the women, and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense. That is, they expounded it so that the people understood the reading, you sense the expectation, the anticipation, you sense the power, the authority, the occasion, the event, God's Word is here before us. We will submit our lives and our wills to it. Brothers and sisters, this sermon has been preached in the sincere prayer that we would recommit ourselves to the highest possible view of preaching that we would esteem the exposition of the very lively word of God and that we would accept nothing else. There is so much else out there that is vying for our attention and that, and that prostitutes itself as true preaching. You settle for nothing less than the charge that Paul called Timothy to, preach the word. Let's pray together. Father, please, please, please give to us needy people, the sheep of your pasture, a very bright future as long as Christ tarries. We pray that you would please week after week after week after week for hundreds of more years give us Bible preaching faithfully, feed us on the word of God. We don't want anything else protect us from itching ears, protect us from wandering off into myths, protect us from the ever-present temptation to accumulate to ourselves preachers that will suit our own passions. May we settle for nothing less than the Word of God preached under the influence of your Spirit. Give us wisdom and hearts to discern and eyes to see what true preaching is. Make all of us to be lovers of your Word, lovers of your word preached. We pray these gatherings, we know that not all of us could be gathering week by week as there are concerns, but we pray that as we do continue to gather and as more and more come in the weeks ahead, that you would bless these assemblies week by week and fulfill all of your promises to us to come and to be present with us by your Holy Spirit and to send forth your word to accomplish that for which you have sent it forth help us to love the bible yes we pray in jesus name amen